there is no one path and everybody really needs to find what's the best combination and choices for themselves. So that's the part that might be a little tricky. It's just not laid out all on one piece of paper and completely clear. So I think you need to be willing to take risks, to take chances. I think you really have to believe in yourself and use the people around you as much as possible, um, but not be afraid. I think if, if I look at some people, what holds them back the most is fear and it's fear of the unknown. And so it's okay to have, so it really helps if you have a plan, but then also be open for that plan to have twists and turns and changes and things that you didn't expect because many of them are gonna be really positive and for the better. Hi there, welcome back for another Macademia podcast episode. Myself, Oferizal Balnea and Elena Iskovic get together with fascinating people to explore different ways science and scientific careers can be developed outside of academia. Before we introduce our guest for today, we want to thank you, yeah, you, that join our Macademia group on Facebook, follow our account at MacademiaP on Twitter, rated our little project, liked our work, or shared it with a friend or colleague. This, aside from motivating us, support others to join this important conversation as we explore those very different ways of how science is much more than just academia. Hello, Karen, and hello, Lena. Good morning. Hi, Karen. It's so great to have you with us. Indeed, I'm very excited to have you here. Um, people will know you as Professor Avram, uh, Karen in the lab, and I uh, I usually refer you as boss. Uh, and I've talked numerous times about our relationship in this podcast, but you are my mentor in every aspect of the world, and I'm very happy that you uh, uh, agreed to uh, join us today. Morning, great to be here. So I know it's night for you, but uh, I've got my cup of coffee in hand. I'm ready to go. Same here. Same here. Same here. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So usually start with a short, like our, our guests give us a short um, elevator pitch. So I know it by heart, but I'll be dying for everybody to know you as well. So, okay. I'm ne never quite sure if this is a philosophical or a real question. But who am I? <laughs> so I, uh, such a loaded question, I think, for everyone. But um, if we'll take it apart, I'm the head of a laboratory of neural and sensory genomics here at Tel Aviv University. I'm also the vice dean of the Faculty of Medicine. And my passion and my goal for now 25, almost 26 years in our laboratory is try to figure out how genes work when there's a pathogenic variant, how it leads to disease. And can we figure out the mechanisms, how we can come up with therapies, treatments, or cures? And I'd have to say that the most important aspect of the work that we do is actually training students, postdocs, and just like you talked about my being your mentor, uh, I call, we call our lab actually Hotel California. Once you're in, you never get out. Even if you physically move to another place, whether it's letters of recommendation or guidance about what to do next, or just to talk about science. Um, I really like to think of our lab as a place to really provide that basis for how you're going to decide to do your science for the rest of your life. I, I completely agree. And, and um, 
it's only by chance that I ended up in California. Okay, but uh, um, this is the absolute vibe in the lab. And, and I, um, I, I want to go back to it later on about like how you're going to do science. And this is this is a great point, and we're going to touch base about, upon that through this through this conversation. But so your route, your route, your scientific route through professorship. You are, uh, as you mentioned, vice dean in, in the University of Tel Aviv, but you haven't started in Israel. Right. I think the accent is a giveaway. Yeah, I was actually born in Canada. I moved to the United States when I was pretty young. And I did my first degree at Washington University in St. Louis. And during that time, I decided I wanted to do a year abroad. I was going between Israel and France. And I had spent summers in Israel and had an amazing time. It was a time where you, nobody had a cell phone. You had breakfast. You left the house for the day. You just hung out with your friends and nobody worried or it was very much concerned about where you were. You came back in the evening for dinner and it was just, um, so, so it was a lot of fun and that's how I envisioned Israel. But um, more seriously, I decided to come here for a semester abroad and I fell in love with the country, with the passion, with the energy. And I also thought at that age, which is maybe something that um, becomes a little less um, as you get older, but uh, I was idealistic. I thought there was a real sense of purpose to living in Israel. I was very, and still am, very committed to peace and, and thought that by living in Israel, I could contribute in my own little way to help build that peace that we so badly still need. Uh, so, so then I decided to come to Israel. Um, I applied and got into, thankfully, to the Weizmann Institute of Science. I did my PhD there. Then I went back to the U.S. for my postdoc at the National Cancer Institute in Frederick, Maryland. And that's where I would say between my PhD and my postdoc is where I decided that really what I wanted to do is uh, study mouse models for human disease. Uh, and so I've done that with, with a couple of twists and turns in the way. And um, a little over 25 years ago, I took this position at Tel Aviv University, where I've been ever since. And uh, other than plane trips here and there, though not for the last year and a half, I've been based here. So did you always knew you, you're going to be a scientist um, in the traditional way? Yeah. Uh, no, actually, I, I, my mother would tell you I'm very artistic. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> and uh, so, so that, that's actually how I started out. I wanted to be an artist, but I was always very practical. I think I still am and decided early on that um, I didn't think that I was creative enough to really make it big as a scientist, as, sorry, as an artist. Um, and uh, <laughs> that wasn't a slip there. <laughs> I don't know. And um, so then I decided I wanted to be a medical illustrator. Now, in those days, it was with literally a pen and paper, pencil and paper. It was not in computers. Um, and, but, but I became so interested in biology, it was in the biology medical direction. And then I took more and more courses during high school and dropped the art and decided that science is the way to, I want to go. I was pre-med for a short amount of time. I think that's one of the reasons what motivated me to go to Washington University in St. Louis. But then I met an extremely talented PhD student. Um, of course, then I thought he was very old, but turns out that he wasn't. Um, <laughs> and uh, I had started washing glassware in a lab to make money. Uh, tuition, even then at Washington University, was very high. Um, and every semester, I was washing less dishes and doing more experiments in the lab. Fell in love with molecular biology. I was cloning, working on cloning the alpha tubulin gene for Baldox. 
And, uh, and that was it. I just, I, n- I never turned back. I just, I love the signs. I love asking the questions, the puzzle of trying to figure it out. Um, when you get a good result and there's nothing like it, you know, I, I have moments where I can picture really tremendous results that we had, whether it was in the days of developing an audiogram for a, an audiograph for a, a Southern blot or a PCR, uh, or an immuno or, or something along those lines, uh, a genetic sequence that you realize, wow, you found it. And there's nothing like that feeling in the world. Can you share one of those? Hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, I have to, I'll, I'll give the really, it still stands out as, as one of the more exciting ones. I was at the Weizmann Institute. I was the second person in Israel who was making transgenic mice. That was really a, a oh, wow really a big thing then. Um, now it's obviously a lot more routine. And um, I think I only had four pups born. So there was a 25% chance that one of them would be transgenic, but four is not a big number. This isn't like a thousand Drosophila. And, um, and two out of the four were positive. And I remember, I, I still remember seeing those bands as that audiograph was, you know, it, it, most, of, most of the audience doesn't remember this, but it, you, this, the, it comes out, the film just comes out slowly, you know, really excruciatingly slow out of the machine. And, uh, and, and I could see those bands, but you're not quite sure because you don't know, is it upside down? Is it this way or that way? And uh, yeah, I remember that. That was pretty tremendous. That's great. So how, how does this, this transition from, from an excited researcher uh, who runs experiment in the lab towards running your own lab. Uh, how was done then? And I think then, then we can progress to, to nowadays. Okay, good question. So I will say one thing that I was, I, mean, I worked at the bench 23 hours a day. I mean, it was, it was crazy, but I didn't think it was crazy. It was just the way it should be. I, I every day, nights, weekends, it, it wasn't even a question. It was what I needed to do to get what I wanted done. I was very goal-oriented, very driven at that point to clone the gene for Snells-Walser, which I succeeded in doing after four years. Now, it'd probably take a good student about three months, but times have really changed. And, but it's funny because I think that I, I've, there's always, I've always taken leadership roles uh, and organized a lot of things. At one point in my going away party, there was a joke about how long I would have my own lab bench. And some people said two years, you know, the kind of classic question. And somebody said, she'll never be at the bench. And I was at the bench, but a really very short time because very quickly, I so enjoyed hiring the students, getting the students on track for their projects. And then as time went on, I became head of the department and then vice dean. And um, I really, really enjoy the process of helping other people succeed, helping people achieve their goals, solving problems. Um, And I quickly kind of lived vicariously through my students doing the experiments. Um, There is a disadvantage over time because you lose touch with um, what really can be done in minute detail. But you compensate by having really outstanding students who pick up that slack. And so the parts that that I'm missing, they pick up and vice versa. So I'd say that it's different from going to a lab where there's a new PI who is 
there aren't enough students in the lab yet, um, still remembers what it's like working with their own hands and is very much uh, at the bench. And then you have some scientists who decide to be at the bench kind of forever. I remember dreaming of taking off for the summer and only doing in situ hybridization, which is one of the most fabulous things to do. Uh, and I never did it, um, but, uh, but, but I still love it. Yeah, I did my PhD at the Garden Institute, so John Garden still continues to do experiments at the bench after his Nobel Prize. He's still there. I remember visiting Princeton, and I walk into Shirley Tillman's lab, and I and she's loading a gel, and I said, "Shirley, what are you doing?" She said, "I'm on sabbatical. I'm having so much fun." <laughs> so yeah, yeah, some people still still do that. So what's different then and now? I don't think there's a whole lot different. The details are different. Um, but you go, you take this route because you absolutely love science because there are so many ups and downs and there are periods where there's more downs than ups because that moment of developing that Southern blot or, um, finding, seeing that genetic sequence, it doesn't happen every day. Um, and, um, we're also, I, I was someplace the other day and they were saying about scientists that you're constantly being tested. You're constantly being told you're not good enough. You know, you wanted that paper to get into nature, but it got into nature genetics. Nothing gets nature genetics. We're still thrilled to get our papers in there, but there's always a higher bar. And, and because of that, instead of uh, thinking, I mean, we just have a tendency to do that. Instead of being thrilled that we got into A, we're thinking, well, why didn't we get B? Or why didn't I get my promotion already two years ago? Why did it only happen now? Uh, and, and so I guess my advice is to everyone is you just got to turn it around. You have to really, um, first of all, you have to love it, right? That's the most important thing. If you don't love the science, if that isn't what really motivates you, that passion, um, this is not a job. This is not a nine to five. Um, um, oftentimes it's not a great salary. Right. So you're going to have financial pressures that perhaps you wouldn't in another job, but you love it. And so that really drives you through everything because that's what mm -hmm. motivates you. It's the science. It's not the salary, the paycheck. Now, of course, we're motivated by the paper getting in and the promotion, but that's almost secondary because that's going to happen anyway. Um, but really what drives you is, is what you come in for every day and the discussions that you're going to have and, and all that. <laughs> I could go on and on about that. Yeah, but so you mentioned you have to love the science, and and you know, take take my case for example. You know it by you know it into details. I love science. I love asking questions, but I don't think the 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 academic environment is for me for for my own reasons. But my question is to you from from seeing many many students and many people uh, at at many levels of science. What is like the the love of science that feeds the the academic environment and and not the biotech or or private sector environment or like even you know public sector or kind of other career choices? Okay, so so um, I only talked about my job. I didn't talk about the other side, the other side, right? So first of all, anything you're going to do in science, whether it's policy making, whether it's teaching high school, whether it's teaching in university. Um, whether it's uh, biotech, whether it's high tech, there are plenty of scientists I know who decided to go into the high tech 
Um, they're using the same algorithms, just the questions and the answers are different. You have to, you have, I mean, I have to say that, that to do all of these things, you should love your job. You have to love the science no matter what you're doing. Uh, so I was just talking about my route and what motivated me to do what I'm doing. Uh, but it doesn't mean that every type of job that you would get using your scientific background to the next step. Um, this isn't the kind of thing that you kind of, no matter what it is that you, because you, you want to succeed and achieve answers um, and enjoy the day to day. So you need that for all of what you're going to do. I think um, maybe how I could try to focus it is you need to be motivated to what that goal is, right? So if you're, I have an amazing cousin who teaches high school and he got into this high school where uh, none of the kids were doing really well on the baccalaureate exams that you need here to graduate in high school. And now it's something at like 90, 95%. And so he went in there with that goal that this is what I would like to achieve. And that's what motivated him. Um, passionate about it, loves the teaching that he's doing. So I think that, I mean, I have to say that one of the things that most scientific students have is a luxury. And the luxury that we have is to choose what we want to do. And there's no right and wrong way. There's the way that you are going to enjoy the work that you're doing the most. Now, the, the, I think the biggest challenge today is we have so many choices. I don't think that there were that many choices when I was growing up as a scientist. It was like you did either this or you did that. And you went to med school, you became a PI. Uh, and we weren't, we weren't taught about the choices. And there weren't a lot like there are today. But I think the trickier part today is when you have so many choices, is how do you know which one to take? And actually, the answer to that is that you don't. Usually you don't. If we knew when we were 20 what we we're going to be doing at 40, 50, and 60 is absolutely the right thing or what we wanted to do, um, I don't know that anyone could, could make that plan. So you just kind of move forward. Um, I'm always amazed at the twists and turns that happened that you didn't plan that actually, in retrospect, end up being the really positive things that happened in your life. And those that really plan and get really stuck on the plan and disappointed if things don't work exactly how they want, I think they have a much harder time. Being flexible and trying to make the best and the most out of whatever situation you're in. I think the other thing that I've learned in life, and I've used this not only in my professional, but also my personal life, is not to regret. Because usually decisions that you made at any given time, that was the right decision at that time. If I decided to come to Tel Aviv University and make my career, maybe 10 years later, and this is hypothetically speaking, because I still think it was one of the best decisions I ever made, uh, maybe it wouldn't have been. Um, but that was the right decision then. And so you always have the choice to move or to make those changes. Now, not everybody has that choice. I realize that. But I think that a lot of scientists do. I think that we're we are a very, very lucky um, part of the world that do have those choices. Yeah, I think I think on one hand, that's true, sort of this sort of very flexible career path that science allows you to do. Uh, but on the other hand, in science, especially in academia, you're so dependent on the people that, that mentored you that if you're sort of got stuck with the wrong mentor, um, then your choices are so limited that it sort of, I think it's, 
it just, you know, after sort of interviewing so many people here and a lot of the time what you hear is that you got stuck in your path because something in your past sort of didn't guide you properly. And, um, and I think that's sort of a disadvantage of, of academia sometimes is that you're so dependent on individuals along your path that um, the sort of choices become so limited. And I think when, um, as you said, sort of, you know, when you st started your lab, the choices weren't, weren't as many. Um, but I think now um, sort of having other choices is, is, impo is important. And it's, uh, it's important to realize that, that you can choose otherwise. Yeah, I think, I think my response to that would be to students is seek out mentors. Don't be shy. Uh, we started recently uh, a women's mentoring group. So we uh, had volunteers from the Faculty of Medicine, women. Um, and, and we're very fortunate in our faculty of medicine. We have a high proportion of really outstanding women scientists. And so, and then we had a list of students who said that they want to have a mentor. And each mentor had uh, two students, and we meet every couple of months. And I have to say, in each mentor individually with a student, I have to say that Zoom has made it much easier to, yeah. to plan and, and to meet. And they've worked out really well. Because sometimes the person who um, is in your lab, you're mostly dealing with logistics, the experiment for the next day, the results that you have, the paper that you have to write, and you don't feel the comfort in talking about the, the big career choices or the paths that you're going to take or what should you do, or even giving them your CV to look over. And, and I mean, I go through hundreds of CVs and help students with them. And so don't be shy. You, what's, what's the worst case? You'll, you'll send an email to someone and say, I'd really like to ask you a couple of questions. I'm having some dilemmas. Uh, would you have some time to meet? The person will say no or they won't answer your email. But I'll bet a lot of people will. Um, people love to mentor, um, you know, kind of share what, what they've done um, over the years. So, um, but yeah, look, it's a lot of luck. It's a lot of the people that you've met along the way. It's the program that you got into. Uh, it's the twists and turns. Um, but it's also, it's also your, your success. Um, and I think that that's part of what I was saying that before that it's tough is that we're constantly tested and measured, uh, and that does make it challenging, but this is, this is a career, no matter what route you take is for someone who aspires to do really good. And it could be at any level. Um, it could be whether you, um, have decided to engage from a social perspective, whether you've decided to do the experiments at the bench, whether you've decided to teach, whatever path you take. Uh, I think what science does is it gives you a really strong base to be able to um, use those tools and the questions that you've asked to move in the direction that actually you, your heart takes you to. Um, so, everybody needs to find their own way. And that, that is the challenge. It's not always such an easy thing to do, but most people do. I mean, when you, you kind of look around and, and see what people are doing, and I still have questions. I, I still have dilemmas. I still have moments of anxiety of, of you know, am I doing the right thing and, and how the lab is running and, and uh, uptight about it deadline that's coming up, those things kind of never end, but they're also part of what drives us. I think that adrenaline 
rush. (laughs) (laughs) Ofer mentioned over the, the episodes a lot about sort of how you helped him to sort of make his decision about um, the next career choice and how you sort of introduced him to other people uh, that he can talk with. Um, And I I thought it's great. And I I wanted to ask you sort of your perspective about how do you help others to make decisions about things you don't necessarily always know about yourself? Right. I I think um, what's most important is you really have to listen to what it is the student wants and is interested in. And even if they think they don't know, once you ask enough lead questions, the threads come out or the ideas come out. Uh, And then it's just about trying to see what are the strongest points and moving it in that direction. But it really has to be what that person wants. It can't be what I want. Uh, It's a little bit like parenting with your kids, right? (laughs) Um, And and there has to be a certain amount of laissez-faire that you're not making the decisions for them. Um, but just provide the tools and the guidance uh, and the directions. Uh, introductions to people is a lot, right? Because I think oftentimes you don't know who to connect with or you're too shy and or you're, a student is going to write an email and it's, it's going to be ignored, right? It's just right. not. Um, but if somebody else does, uh, I think I have an example now of a former postdoc uh, in my lab who is trying to move to another country and uh, will succeed. And I wrote a couple of emails to some very close colleagues and one was incredibly generous to say yes and to help out. And it's going to happen. And when he was writing, it wasn't happening because he was one of a million. So uh, I think that that makes a difference. And I guess my advice to other PIs is help wherever you can. Students rely on us. We're the ones who can make the difference. Now, at the end of the day, though, it's all about that postdoc, right? I have to believe in him. I have to know he's going to do a tremendous job. um, And he will. I know that. I have that confidence. So that's where it comes into, obviously, each PI will go the extra mile because that person deserves it. Ulfer deserved it. (laughs) But thankfully, most of my students do. (laughs) No, seriously, I think that once a student is in our lab, we have a responsibility, I think. And and this is true for anyone who decides to have students or postdocs in their lab. Once you've taken a student or postdoc, even if they don't do very well, and sometimes that happens, right? We know how science is, how experiments are. You still have a responsibility to do everything you can for them to be able to move to that next step successfully. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had so many questions about how you see because you have leadership roles within within uh, within Tel Aviv University and other academic organizations, how you see the role of academia in enabling other career paths and, and this. But you just put it out there that it's like putting away the biggest hurdle as uh, with for example, this mentorship program is to encourage people just to ask questions and and be and be very very open about like what they want to do or just say I like to figure out what I want to do. It's not necessarily the one path that is laid in front of me, and and I think this 
I can see how this mentorship program is 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 the right thing just to encourage encourage people. The information is out there. If if it's here, what like the former former episode we uh, released and other um, other interviews like like podcasts like ours and yeah, but this just took everything off. So uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like a student, like a, a first-year student again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there is, as you mentioned, you had several leadership roles, and I've seen this firsthand uh, with Intel University, University, and other uh, other uh, worldwide organizations, specifically in 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 deafness and and here in impairment genetics, but specifically for the part of. Uh, hiring, so it's not you, you're not just involved in hiring students for the lab and progressing the science within uh, neuro and uh, uh, neuro and the sensory uh, uh, genomics section, but also like f- like fresh fresh views, fresh uh, PIs, uh, young PIs to uh, to the uh, Tel Aviv University Medical School. It would be awesome to 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 have your take on. How does process work from from the administration uh, point of view, not the candidate one? Right. Uh, so we have, uh, and there's similarities and differences to other institutions in Israel and, of course, around the world. But in general, there's um, in some places there are limited calls. We tend to be much more open because we usually have positions in every department. There's a call. Um, there's a deadline. And I, I actually always tell uh, candidates, respect the deadlines. Um, I know that there's some places they tend to be looser, but usually there's a committee that is really busy. There are people who have, are scientists, have their own labs. Uh, and we like to look at applications all at once because we only have one or two positions. So even though we don't really like that idea, but essentially everyone is competing against one another for that one or two slots. So we need to see the positions Um, the applicants simultaneously. Um, We go through the applications. Uh, It is tough, (laughs) but it's tough for every kind of job that you're going to apply for where there's uh, excellence, uh, high standards. Uh, We don't look for one particular area, right? We're a medical school, so we're looking for research and health and disease. So I think it is important to look at the specific institution or faculty or department, what is what it is that they're interested in. And you should be aligned with their goals. Uh, you should look into whether teaching is a requirement. You should really like to teach because teaching at a university is really important. And it turns out that it's not only important because our goal is to teach the next generation, but it's also because it makes a big difference in your science. It keeps you most up to date with the latest technology, techniques, scientific questions, because there's nothing you need to know more than when you're sitting in front of a classroom and and teaching the material. Um, So uh, the application process is two-tiered. We go through the first run of applicants. We see who is qualified to make it to the next cut, who we want to interview. And we usually have about 40, 45 applications. We interview usually about 10 to 12. Uh, The interviews used to be in person. People would visit, spend the day with us, have lunch, dinners. Uh, well, last year, last two years was very different because everything moved to Zoom. Um, but we still have meetings all day and a chalk talk, which is ter- something that we just started not too long ago. It just turned out to be really important. 
you really get an idea of somebody's signs during that time. Um, and this process takes about a couple of months. Um, and then we go, we give out the offers. I mean, it, it really is that simple at some level. Um, and it's complicated because there's a lot of really, really good applicants, very hard choices to make. Of course, as a committee, we all have our favorite topics and favorite um, type of science. Uh, we, so we do it at a faculty level. So we really try to think of what's best for the whole faculty. And, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to pinpoint. We're, we're looking for that person who has it all, right? I don't have to tell you, you all see what it is like to be a scientist now in academia. You need to be able to, um, I mean, of course, you know, I talk about passion and being driven by all that, but that, that's in the background. But on a practical point of view, you need to write the papers with the, uh, that are going to make the most tremendous impact. And of course, we're talking about impact in terms of scientific discoveries. We want you, uh, we all want to be the first in making those discoveries, but impact also means the best journals. You uh, need to fund your research. You need to get really uh, top um, grants. You need to be able to teach, serve on committees. <laughs> um, there's so many things that we need to do. Uh, it's such a multifaceted job. And it always was. I think it's gotten more complicated just because life in general has gotten more complicated. So I think that the way life has gone is, is just matched what we do in academia. But we were all, there were always those expectations of us. Um, okay, so it used to be that there were 10 emails a day you had to answer, and now there's 100. So, so from that perspective, things have gotten a little bit more complicated, but not in terms of what was expected of you. Um, but I think going back to one of the questions, Ophir, that you asked before, academia is an education. And it's, it's an education long term, whether it's when you're a graduate student, a postdoc, or even at the point I'm in, I'm still learning. And so our goal is to really break, bring the students to a point where they can decide what it is they want to do in their next step. Now, of course, we hope that the best and the brightest are going to decide to stay in academia because in order to ensure science kind of worldwide, you need to have scientists in academia. But you also, in order to uh, have uh, healthcare professionals, you need to have people decide that they want to become nurses, physical therapists, occupational therapists, nurses, physicians. Um, and you also need those who are going to go and um, work at, at the different companies, whether it's startups, whether it's more established pharma or biotech companies. Um, and so I think our goal is to provide those tools for whatever area that you want to go into in science. I have a question. So as you said, it, you know, back in the day, it was is really so the, there weren't a lot of options for PhD students and sort of academia was sort of the natural route to those that are interested in science and are, you know, driven and, and want to be very successful. And I think today people realize, and the world changed, like there, there are more options for scientists, uh, especially in the bio field, especially the past, um, I don't know, uh, five, seven years, um, and there are more ways to bring sort of real impact uh, on a very global and sort of large scale. Um, I wonder, did, have you noticed that it affected sort of who comes, sort of who chooses to, to stay in the academia or continue in the academia? Um, 
is there anything sort of i don't know has has this sort of has the sort of the group of people that actually want are interested in staying in academia has changed or has has it, it stayed the same no i think actually, i think it stayed the same i don't think that there's a, a big difference usually about 10% of um it depends on the lab but i'd say in my lab about 10% decided they wanted to go on to academia some of those were mds so they're doing more the md phd route so they're both practicing medicine and doing research mm -hmm. um but no i have to say it, it hasn't changed and the proportion of students all across the way who have decided to either um work in a hospital several students who are heads of uh genetics clinics or whether they've decided to continue in bioinformatics or whether they've gone back to med school whether they've gone into biotech i would have to say all across the board the proportion is pretty much stayed the same mm -hmm. um and so i i don't think that there's a major change there's some labs that there's a higher proportion of students who end up staying in academia and going for pi's and there's some less uh i think it has to do a little bit with the topic so i think genetics there's a lot of different kinds of jobs that you can do after getting a degree in genetics and so i think that that's why um there's students who come in they to my lab who want to become genetic counselors or work in genetics clinics so i think that there's that advantage from that perspective i think one thing that has changed uh is that science is a lot more of a multi-team effort mm -hmm. so you know we just published a paper there were 50 authors that's yeah. especially in genetics and genomics that's something and certainly in bioinformatics um and so it depends on the type of person you are uh not everyone can be one of 50 in a team there are other people who can who like to work with smaller groups and so they'll go into that type of science and then there's those who really enjoy being part of that greater team effort and knowing that they were um one person who made that tremendous discovery happen uh is something that is is that what really propels them so i think that's part of it as well when you're thinking about what you want to do uh i think the size of the group that you'd like to work with makes a difference so so the point on, of teamwork it's something that constantly comes up in our interviews from people who are like they say okay i i i done a very successful postdoc in the in a tier 1 institute but i was missing team i was missing being uh everyone working on the same on the same project at the same time pushing this together and 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 now you say it's more collaborative and and it, it science has become more of a of a team effort would um i wonder how how to make it like for a a candidate who's just finishes finishing his postdoc make his team effort or team leadership uh uh skills pop out from his application um okay well one thing that you have to realize in order to get a job uh the team is great but you have to be first right so yeah. so that this is part of the balance that we always have um so a lot of that depends on what kind of job you want in terms of your future um so for that person for it to pop out um it's great it's essential that they will be first author on one three you know it's not it isn't and it's not a numbers game i can't really define how many papers you should have as first author it depends the type of work you've done 
how much of the work that you've done for that one paper, where it's published, obviously what the discovery is. Uh, but it also really helps that you were part of other papers in your lab. Um, and those, obviously, if all of your papers are collaborative, you're not first author, you will not get a position. But if you were part of other papers, it shows that you are collaborative. So I think that that, so being involved in as many projects as possible. Now, you know, labs do things differently. There are those that all work toward a common goal. Um, the complication there is then, you know, there only one person can be first author, okay, maybe two, because we've got the shared authorship issue, which by the way, when I was starting out in science, that concept hardly existed the way that it does today. So um, you have to find that balance. So I try in my lab that everybody has their own project. Obviously we work in teams. There's no way that we can get a paper published if, with one person doing the work. I think the only paper I have with just me and one other person, that's with Orna Attar. And Orna's also not only had that one paper, but Ofer introduced you to our lab. So that's another really <laughs> many bonus points that she gets for that. Um, so it is important to uh, be part of a team, being able to work together. Because if you have a lot of people in the work, you have to get along, you have to do all play by the rules in terms of, right, every lab goes through it, you know, don't finish up the supply and, and leave the tube empty and for the next person to come in, it won't be there, right? These are kind of universal things. But on the other hand, I do try that each person has their own project so that they have the opportunity to be first author, so that they have the choices for that next phase of their career. So, yeah, it's, it's finding the balance in the middle. So I, um, you mentioned the uh, that the uh, calls for positions at Tel Aviv University are more open and on their faculty uh, level, but how and and the committee is is comprised of different different uh, professors from the faculty, each one with his own interest. But how who who uh, who decides what is the next ten years of Tel Aviv University should go towards, uh, and then the hiring should be more focused on right so we don't have we don't have that focus on one particular area uh, and that's because we um, if we could hire 10 people a year perhaps we could have more of that defined focus but because it's one to two we very much have to think of our teaching needs and while the research excellence has to, it has to be first we also, um, uh, for example, if there was somebody who's doing tremendous work in physics, that would be great for, for the Department of Physics, not for the Faculty of Medicine. So what we're interested in is health and disease, um, but then we're very broad. We, we want the work to be excellent, but we don't have, um, um, you know, there aren't areas that we're not interested per se. Um, obviously, we're interested in infectious diseases and in cancer and genetic diseases. Um, um, but we don't, we don't have one particular area that we focus on per se. So it, it is pretty broad. And so who makes the decision in terms of the future? We all do collectively. We have a search committee. Um, we have um, a chair of our search committee. Um, so I think we help move it in a direction that we're interested in, but there isn't one particular area. In Cambridge, uh, at least sort of in the departments I had, um, sort of inter where I, I did my PhD, um, there were it, it felt like there are sort of 
gradually more moving towards the more sort of applied science, um, sort of where the the discovery is very close to to something that's that's useful um, within the, the the next few years. I wonder how is it like in Tel Aviv University? Are you still sort of very focused on basic biology, or um, are you also sort of shifting towards the applied um, side of things? Right. So I will say, I think that administrations um, tend to want to move in that direction. Um, and people who run the, the side of the university that runs the university um, really has to be thinking of the bottom line, and that's the financial health of an organization. And so I think that that's partly what drives that direction oftentimes. And yet... I really believe this. I mean, it may sound clichéish, but I think the future of mankind, um, people kind, depends on science advancing at every level. So obviously, translation is critical because we won't ultimately, we wouldn't have that Pfizer or Moderna or any other vaccine yeah. to have gotten us through COVID. But much of, of what enabled that vaccine to happen was because of very basic research that happened for many years along the way. And so you never can tell when you're doing that basic research, whether it's something that can move into the applied in a year or in 20 years, right. but it's absolutely the fundamental part. Now, we are in a faculty of medicine. So I tend to like uh, research that comes in that is more health medically related. Um, but there are others who think that we should also be doing um, you know, that you don't necessarily have to see that direct link. It could be DNA structure. Uh, so, so that I think is a bit of a personal choice, depends on the scientists. Um, and so in our case, for example, if you look at the different faculties, you also start seeing that there's kind of a blur between the lines of faculties and of departments, because so many of us are inter and multidisciplinary today. Um, there's, there isn't just physics anymore. There's a lot of biophysics or chemical chemistry and physics. Um, there are many people that you can take in some of our departments and you can move them to another department. And, you know, I don't know who would notice in terms of <laughs> the type of topic that they work on. Uh, if it was up to me, we would do away with all these, these what I consider artificial borders. A lot of them are historical and it really is about teaching. And people also like to be part of a unit. I think that that makes a difference as well. You need to belong to something. But, um, um, Yeah, so I, I... So there are many, very few positions, many, many candidates. I know I'm, I'm talking to the candidate. Many friends are candidates uh, this year, last year, and, and the uh, upcoming uh, couple of years. I'm, I'm, I'm assuring you there are very, very good prospects coming in. And I wonder if a good one uh, comes in, she or he, uh, What um, kind of a cheesy question, but <laughs> is there like an, a background fight between institutes? Like we want this this person oh, in that lab. Absolutely, we will do anything to get him <laughs> or her. I, I don't think it's about that lab. It's about the person. Um, and yeah, the competition is intense. I mean, I we find that it's kind of the those ten. or 12 candidates that we interview, um, usually most of them are, have applied everywhere else. 
And it, there's a tendency for the same people to get positions, get offers everywhere. Uh, and yeah, we're all competing with one another. <laughs> Competition is the name is, is the name of the game in science. So just as uh, candidates are in a sense competing against one another, so are the institutes. We all want the best candidate. Uh, yeah. So I'd have to say, you know, going back to your question about basic versus translational. Um, Again, it all comes down to the candidate being able to be really successful in this really tough environment, uh, competitive environment. And so, um, and there's a lot, there, you know, there's a fair amount of complaining these days and kind of you chose it, right? This is, if, if you kind of decided to go for this job, then just accept, um, you could, I, I mean, how can I qualify it? You know, I work hard to, to make changes all the time and to make things better. But I also understand there's a baseline of the way it is if you decided to go for uh, an academic route. Uh, it's never going to be a business. It's never going to be like, like, uh, uh, like a company. And so if you've decided to go through this route, there are certain things you just really should accept because also that acceptance, I think, will make your life a lot easier than kind of fighting every step of the way. Um, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to be a leader and make changes for the better for your whole community, which is something that I try to do as much as possible. So I, I think it's about like everything. Also life, you've probably in some of your podcasts talked about balances of life. So I think it's the same thing there that you should always just try to find balance and what you can live with well. So I, I wonder what are the sort of biggest changes you're, you're fighting for? Um, in academia? Oh, wow. So many. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think so. I think working conditions for um, those who have decided not to go the PI route. Um, I think that one of the problems in academia is the instability for those jobs. Now, I don't think that people should have tenure um, lifelong because while it would be wonderful on a, um, on a, um, theoretical point of view, experience has shown us that if those positions have tenure, then over time, people just get complacent um, and they, they don't work hard enough. Um, and I wish it was different, but that is our reality. Uh, and the costs that with tenure are just so high that they're not sustainable for universities. Mm. Um, so that that's the disadvantage because it means, do you want to take a job where there's going to be that instability? But if you go to a company, there's also instability. So some argue, well, the compensation there is the salary. But um, having a job in academia is also a way of life. It, there aren't the pressures. Um, usually there aren't the changes, you know, for one day to the next, a company can shut down. Academia is kind of stays there forever. Um, there's the advantages of, of the students that you're training. And so I think there's a lot of advantage of that academic, there's, it's more relaxed in some ways than, than working in a company. But I don't know. I've never worked in companies, so I, I don't know exactly <laughs> what that's like. Um, but I think that we do need to change the conditions, that the contracts are only for one year. They should be for longer. And if I have a grant for four or five years, I should be able to hire someone and know that I can pay them for four or five years. But there, So there's a lot of logistic and administrative hassles to deal with there. And it, a lot of it is stuck at the top level of the university's administration. 
Um, we're trying to make those changes. It's very, very slow, but I think that we have to do those. I think that we also have to make the infrastructure units, the people who are in charge there, have more flexibility in terms of being able to do their own research. I think that we'll have uh, better uh, people going for those jobs as well. Hmm. Um, so those are some more of the logistic kind of things. Mm-hmm. For the rest, actually, I think things are really good. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what there are some institutes worldwide, like the EMBL or CRG in, in Spain that has like a, uh, a PI position, but it's limited. They are, they're limiting the contracts for seven years or nine years, if I'm not mistaken. What, what is your take on, on that? It's, is, is it, is it like a good amount of time to build a very good lab and like a legacy in the Institute or that's not a sustainable model? Yeah, it's hard for me to judge what's done in Europe because it is so different than Israel. I do think that if we had such a model in Israel, very few people would be willing to take that academic position. I mean, let's, you know, let's face it. It's not um, the the salary long term is not incredible, right? It's it's a way of life that you adjust to. But um, so I think that it would be hard to ask someone to take this extremely competitive job where you're um, you know, you're, it's, it's a 24-7 type of commitment to your work um, and without that job security. So um, I, I think that, um, you know, you just, you have to choose well early on. Um, and that's part of the pressure that we have when we're hiring someone because we want everyone to get tenure. We don't hire like some other places that only 70% should get tenure. We want 100% to get tenure, but we want that 100% to be people who are highly successful and who are going to be able to, who are going to be driven to do that work, right, and kind of forever. Um, so, so there's a lot of pressure on us to choose well. Uh, and um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to say, the European model, because I don't want to criticize a model that I don't know well, but it, it certainly wouldn't be sustainable in Israel. I, if you expected someone to then find, you you couldn't get your own lab after seven, eight years. It's very hard to make that jump. So here you have to either be coming from a very successful career uh, abroad, um, and usually it's an Israeli who decides that they want to return after a certain amount of time, or it's coming off after a postdoc. So the tenure, the tenure model for the most part in biomedical type research, I think works really well. If we look across the board, there are very few people who don't keep working really hard um, and continue that way of life. Getting tenure or getting that promotion doesn't mean all of a sudden now you just take it easy. Now these people, most of the people are really driven uh, for a very, very long time. So I think that model, I think for here, the model works and every model is going to have a few outliers that aren't going to do that. And so then oftentimes after a number of years, perhaps they're going to do more teaching. Um, They won't have a lab that's as big as when they started so that transition could happen. So hard for me to say. I have one last question. I think that I've been, um, I've been asked a couple of times. The natural way of things is a PhD, a postdoc, maybe another postdoc, maybe another postdoc, but like postdoc to the to the power of N. 
and then if you're good enough and you can uh, uh, sum up an application and this is what you want, go for a PA position. Is there, let's say a hypothetical candidate that has chosen to leave the postdoc to PI track and went to be a project leader at, at a big pharma company, published, he's very, he's very good in what he does, but he wants to go back to basic science in academia. Is that something that is even considerable? Is that an application that even will, I don't know, it'd be too odd? Oh, yeah. Um, no, I don't think it, well, usually people don't make that career change. Uh, I haven't seen an application like that, um, but I don't, if unt until that point, they were highly successful. Uh, and then at the company level, wherever they were, they managed uh, an outstanding program. Um, I suppose it would mean how long the gap would be because I think to go, to have to go back into that world where you're generating data for manuscripts, um, you can't lose touch with that, right? So that's something there has to be some continuity. I think the bar for publishing, you know, I, I published a science paper in 1998 where I think the most sophisticated experiment was real-time PCR. Okay, and everybody knows that that wouldn't even get into supplementary data today. So, uh, and it doesn't mean that it wasn't, I mean, what we did for that science paper in 1998 was incredibly complex at that time. Uh, but publishing has gotten really intense. So, and, and that's what you need to do in, in order to have that academic career. Uh, for your for your students to succeed, for you to succeed, it's it's how we're measured, right? If in other places, maybe you're measured by the deals that you've made. Here, you're measured by the papers that you've published. Um, so it depends for how long. It depends what that scientific program was. So I, I would never say I'd never say no to any candidate. Um, everyone is measured by their own merits and their own success. So if somebody believes that this is the route that they want to go through, they should certainly try and apply. Karen, thank you so much. That was a lot of insights, and um, I always enjoy talking to you. So, and then, <laughs> yeah, and I, I can't emphasize enough. Um, I've done this in numerous other um, opportunities, but you have affected my scientific career, and not only my scientific career, uh, my uh, my my life path a lot. So, thank you for that. Thank you for this, like for all the insights today. My pleasure. I just want to kind of leave with say that there really, and I think you're a great example of that, there is no one path and everybody really needs to find what's the best combination and choices uh, for themselves. So that's the part that might be a little tricky. It's just not laid out all in one piece of paper and completely clear. So I think you need to be willing, and you've done it, over to take risks, to take chances. I think you really have to believe in yourself and use the people around you as much as possible, um, but not be afraid. I think if, if I look at some people, what holds them back the most is fear and it's fear of the unknown. And so it's okay to have, so it really helps if you have a plan, but then also be open for that plan to have twists and turns and changes and things that you didn't expect, because many of them are going to be really positive and for the better. Uh, and not to let fear drive you, just to keep things open. You know, there's a lot of, this is going to be really hard and it's going to be really, you're not, 
just try, you know, not to get stuck in, in the really hard, but get stuck as this can be really something really fulfilling for you and, um, and take the chances. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Karen. I think it's, okay. uh, it's very not straightforward to have that approach and for, for PIs. Uh, and a lot of them are very, you know, very dedicated to one path and that's the only sort of path to success in their, um, and everything else is sort of less than success. Uh, and I think it's great when there are PIs that are sort of accepting all the different choices. And, and I think you're right. Like if you're passionate and you love what you do, no matter what that is, you'll be more successful and the change that you'll drive is, is going to be better and bigger. So um, thank you very much for that. And thank you for your time today. It's been wonderful. Yeah. Great to spend some time with you.